Well, we are getting close to the end. I think we just have a, I don't know, maybe a month, month and a half left, and we'll finally make it all the way through the Gospel of John. And uh, last week, as Pastor Joseph was ministering, we saw that, um, basically, we saw the beginning of what the devil had hoped would be the end of Jesus. But we know better, right? The devil thought he was going to have victory, but really, he just got smacked around, and he didn't even know it. So that was when Jesus was finally betrayed by Judas there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was arrested by a battalion of Roman soldiers accompanied by the temple guards. I wonder what would happen if a battalion of soldiers showed up. How we would think. I mean, I don't know what they expected to happen, but a battalion of Roman soldiers is about 600 men. That's how many men they sent after Jesus. There must have been some real concern about what was going to happen. You're right? And and think about this. We we think, we're like, man, why would they send 600 men to Jesus? But think about what just happened. Jesus just made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. There was thousands of people on the road, you know, cheering him on as he came in. At this point, the Roman government's figuring, this guy's got a huge following. We don't want to mess on our hands if, if there's an uprising or something. So they send 600 men thinking that maybe there would be some resistance. But this didn't take Jesus by surprise, right? He knew this was coming. Matter of fact, he, he had already predicted it on many occasions that this day was coming. But the disciples, even though they had been told by Jesus this was coming and that it had to happen because they had to fulfill Scripture, even though all of this, they still acted out a little bit, right? Peter grabs a sword, starts whacking people's ears off. He, he's, he's trying to protect Jesus, and Jesus is like, listen, knock it off. I already told you this was supposed to happen. And then afterwards... Jesus is arrested, and then he's questioned and accused by the Jewish leaders, and ultimately is, is in front of the Jewish high priest at the time, which was Caiaphas, and this, this mock trial that happens, right? And the Jewish leaders, they knew that they didn't have any grounds for his death, or even for his arrest, so they begin in calling in false witnesses. They're trying to make up a story of him so they can feel justified. Because the truth is, the truth wasn't really important to them. From the other uh, Gospels, we actually see that they utilized false witnesses to bring false uh, accusations so they might have some evidence to to accuse him, to to put him uh, to death at the hands of the Romans. So today we continue that story. Um, He was taken, uh, we find ourselves still in the house of Annas, which is the the high priest's father-in-law of the time, which was Caiaphas was the high priest, Annas was the, the high priest's father-in-law. And, and this is where we come back into that story where we see, Jesus, or we see Peter denying Jesus two more times. And then finally, we're going to see Jesus taken to uh, Pontius Pilate's headquarters, the governor's headquarters, so they could get, the Jewish leaders wanted to get him to pronounce judgment on Jesus. Ultimately, they wanted him to kill him. So in John 18, 25 through 27, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. 
So last week we saw that Simon Peter and another disciple who is not named in, in, in the gospel, but most scholars, although not all, but most scholars believe it was actually John himself, um, had made their way into the, to the high priest's home, or, or uh, rather the high priest's father's home. This was Annas' home. And they're, they're out in the courtyard while Jesus is being questioned. So they're out there warming themselves by the fire. Um, but as they're coming up at the front door, so John goes in and he talks to the, the servant girl there and says, hey, let my friend in. And she says, wait a minute, to Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? And that's the first time that Peter denies Jesus. And we know that this was going to happen because you remember that Jesus had already told Peter that this would happen. John 13, 37 through 38 says, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I, can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So in this moment, so that was the first time, and they kind of separate the two times. They, they show up, and then, then Jesus is getting questioned by Annas, and now we're back to Peter, who's outside, warming himself by the fire, still at Annas' house or in the courtyard. Jesus is actually uh, uh, still there, but the verses right before this says that, that Annas had, had basically bound him and was sending him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And... Uh, the reality is, is that when this ha is happening, it's kind of all happening together. Jesus is probably being walked through the courtyard this very moment as Peter is sitting out there denying Jesus. So as Peter's warming himself by the fire, he's trying to figure out what's happening to Jesus, but he's still trying to remain in the shadows, right? And uh, one of the servants, or actually many of the servants there, begin asking him, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And Peter says, I am not. And the interesting thing in here is that maybe it was just at this moment that this relative of Malachus, which was the, the, the servant that got his ear cut off, noticed. Maybe Peter is, is denying it so loud he's kind of causing a stir, and now all of a sudden the, the relative of Malachus starts to notice Peter there. But for whatever reason, in this moment, now he sees Peter, and he says, Hey, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And once again, Peter denies it. And it's just at this moment that the rooster crows, just as Jesus has predicted. In the Gospel of Luke, as it's describing this moment, you actually see it says that at this moment, as soon as Jesus, or as soon as Peter denied it, Jesus is being walked by and he says he looked at him. And then at a moment, Jesus looks at him as he denied Jesus the third time. Peter begins to weep bitterly. Peter's denial of Jesus is included in all four Gospels. This indicates how significant this event was. Peter's really failure, how significant it was this event was for all the Gospel writers to share with all of us and all the disciples who would relate, who would read it later, how important this event was. But it's not just his denial that's recorded, but his restoration as well. You see, you'll notice a, a huge difference in Judas's betrayal of Jesus versus Peter's 
ultimately betrayal of Jesus. He, he, he was his friend. He, he said he would never deny him, and then all of a sudden he's denied him multiple times. So it wasn't the same style of betrayal, but it still was a betrayal of Jesus. But you'll notice that there's a, a great difference in the response of Peter versus Judas. Here we see Peter showing real remorse. And this makes way for genuine repentance as Jesus restores him later. You see, Judas never really repented. There was no genuine, but Peter's a different story. And I think that this event should be a great encouragement to all of us. You see, there are times in your life where you've likely fallen away from Jesus. Let me rephrase that. We won't point to you guys. There's times in my life that I have backed away from Jesus, that I have pulled away, where I have turned my back on him. And it's encouraging to me because even in those moments, there's always a way for me to come back home. Now, I've known people that have been backslid or they've, they've walked away from Jesus. And one thing I've noticed is that whenever they come back, many of them feel like that there's no way they can have that same relationship that they had before. They feel like that they could never make it back to where they were before. And it's a real hindrance to their future growth and relationship with the Lord because they feel like that they've betrayed Him, they've walked away. How could it ever get back to the way it was? And they, they almost get like a mental block in their head and they can't get through it. They feel like there is no path home. There is no path for complete restoration. But I think we should all be encouraged because we see in this simple illustration, like I said, it was so important that all four gospel writers included it. We see we should be encouraged that no matter how bad we mess up, no matter how far we run, no matter how much we turn away, there's always a way back home. If we'll repent and put our eyes back on, on Jesus, this idea that we can get in our head that we can never come back to where it was, that we can never restore it, is simply not true. And Peter's the proof. Peter repented. And he was restored not to just his own uh, personal relationship, to his own edification, but to all of ours because he became the pillar of the church. Peter was considered the leader of the church. A man who just days before had denied Jesus completely is now a leader. He's restored completely. So if you've ever found yourself drifting or walking away from Jesus or rejecting or denying, just know that there is hope because restoration is always available to you too. Amen. So we continue on in, in verses 28 through 29. It says, And they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled, but they could eat Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? You guys want to know something funny about me? When I was, <laughs> really, this was even in the beginning of me being a pastor, it took me so long to break this habit. Whenever I had written, read, written, read anything with this name here, when you read in your head, I always pronounced it Pilate. 
every time when I would when I would read, it took me so like there's so many times I've been preaching where I have to like catch myself to not revert back to those. It's Pilate, it's Pilate, it's Pilate. Don't sound like a, a silly idiot up there. But uh, yeah, so that is not pronounced Pilate. In case anybody was concerned, it's Pilate. Hallelujah. I'm trying to get better at uh, looking up how words are, are, are pronounced because uh, I found that when I read, um, just the way I process it, I, I don't pay attention to how I pronounce names in my head. I just see the name and it's fine. But then when I get up here and preach, and I'm like, I don't know how to say that. I had to look up. I even have, if you look at my notes, I, I wrote out phonetically how to pronounce Caiaphas because that's probably not how I would read, read that. <laughs> Anyway, you guys are distracting me. Let me get back to it. So they led Jesus back, and uh, so we've made our way now uh, to the civil trial before the Roman governor, Pilate. And uh, here's the thing. The Jewish council did not have the authority to put Jesus to death, so they basically had to outsource it. It seems that uh, at some point when the Jews were under Roman rule, that they had lost their official capacity for execution. Now, Jewish execution would have normally been stoning. That was a traditional way of execution. And we do see in the New Testament that there were instances of stoning, so it seems like that uh, spontaneous stoning, if it were, <laughs> if you will, like, you know, when, when they stoned Stephen or, or when they were getting ready to stone the, the lady who had been caught in adultery, like this idea, this spontaneous stoning, um, they seem to have the Romans kind of turned a blind eye to, but, uh, you know, this, the, putting them through trial and the official capacity to execute had been removed from the, the Jewish rulers. They just weren't allowed to do it anymore because they were under the thumb of the Roman government. And uh, so they, they have to take them to, to Pilate. And it's interesting in John's gospel how different the description of these events are compared to the other gospels. John's gospel is the only gospel that shows um, Annas' questioning of Jesus. And then it completely skips over Jesus going before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and also Caiaphas, right? It says, if you read John, it says that he took him to Caiaphas, and then all of a sudden we're here. It doesn't describe the events there, but the other gospels, they describe that event. It's a pretty big deal. He's in front of all the Jewish leaders, in front of Caiaphas. They, they, they bring false witnesses against him, and then they actually charge him with blasphemy. John doesn't talk about that at all. <laughs> I don't know if, if, uh, if you guys don't know, the Gospel of John is the, the last of the Gospels written. So maybe John's like, well, this has already been written about in the other books. Kind of like, have you ever read the, the, the book of Chronicles or the book of Kings when you get to the end, it's like, and, and about such and such, that's already written about in the, in the book of Chronicles. Almost like, like, quit bothering me. Go read it over there. So that's... Uh, Maybe that's why he, he, he didn't do it, because it's already this is, this is just a supplement of the other Gospels. Maybe it was because he didn't want to be repetitive. Right, really, it's just it's different names, it's different faces, but it's the same trumped-up charges. I don't know. Don't quit asking me. I didn't write it. But it is different. It is interesting. Also find that John records this interview between Pilate and Jesus in much greater detail than any of the other Gospels. So the Jews at this time, they, they, they left uh, Caiaphas, and, and they're, they're heading to uh, Pilate's headquarters, which was also called the Praetorian. 
And this is where the Roman governor would have lived while he's in Jerusalem. Actually, the Roman governor wouldn't have stayed in Jerusalem normally. He would have been in Caesarea. But when they show up, they don't go inside. Because if they go inside, they would be unclean. That's what it says here. Uh, They didn't enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled. So for Jews to go into a Gentile house, that would make them ceremonially unclean. And they wouldn't have been able to participate in the Passover. So you know, they remained in the courtyard being very careful to uphold the law. And I don't know about you, this just seems totally odd to me because they're super careful to uphold the law while they're in the midst of committing murder. Like, they, it's like they just don't have the, they just don't see what they're doing. Like, you're in the midst of trying to perpetrate a murder, but you want to make sure. It's like if you were, if you were going to go out and, uh, and uh, uh, assassinate someone, like some, some big assassin going out, and, but they're very careful not to break and enter as they go to do this other crime. So since they... They couldn't go into him, though, because they've decided they're going to remain ceremonial clean. Even though they're committing murder, they're going to remain clean and not go into his house. They just go to the courtyard of the, of the headquarters here. And so Pilate comes out and says, hey, what accusation do you bring against this man? And Pilate, to, to give you some background, Pilate was the Roman governor in charge of Judea, where Jerusalem was from AD 26 to 36. And like I said, he typically lived in Caesarea, but during the major feasts, he came to Jerusalem in order to deal with any problems that could potentially arise when you have so many people traveling into one location. So he's just there to make sure that everything goes well, because if things don't go well, he's got to answer to Caesar. So in addition, um, Pilate was not well liked by the Jews. They, they, they had a, not a love-hate relationship, they had a hate-hate relationship. They just hated one another so for the jews to actually go to him to give jesus to him to give one of their own another jew to jesus this really demonstrates their hatred and desperation to get rid of jesus they would have never done this it was just completely unheard of for the jews to turn over one of their own to the romans that's why tax collectors it was such a terrible name because these are Jewish men who are working for the Roman government. In addition, they would steal from the Jews as well. They keep a little bit on their own. That's, that's why, if you've ever wondered, like when, when, when they're trying to be insulting in the New Testament, they're like, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Like that's an extra category. Like they, they, anybody that worked with the, with the Romans just... So this is this is. This really demonstrates how determined they were to get rid of Jesus. So then they respond. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You almost get the impression from the response of of, uh, Pilate to the Jews is that this request wasn't just a simple question like, hey, I got to write the in my logbook. What are you accusing him of? No, this was like almost a challenge to the Jews. And the reason I say that is because look how defensive they answer it. 
Listen, if, we weren't, if he wasn't doing evil, we'd have delivered him over to you. Like, this isn't some, it's almost like they're trying to convince him that this isn't some trumped-up charge. We wouldn't have brought him if he didn't do anything wrong. Why, why do you ask us this? You know, we're, and I wonder if maybe this is why, why Pilate is initially dismissive. Like, hey, no, well, you go take care of it. Or maybe this wasn't a defensive response here. Maybe this was just a deceptive response. Maybe they understood that they didn't have any real reason to accuse Jesus. So it was more of a, just trust us. Trust us. He's really bad. Jesus bad. Trust us. Or maybe, like I said, these, these guys really hated each other. Maybe, maybe Pilate's just trying to give them a hard time. But what's interesting is Pilate certainly knew what was going on. You know, when we read this question, we get this idea in our head that, like, this was spontaneous, that, that you know, they should, this is the first time Pilate's ever seen or heard of Jesus. This is the, you know, that's why he doesn't know, like, what are you accusing him of? I need to understand. We just had the triumphal entry. Jesus was being worshipped and honored by thousands of people. People were, were in a train following him, waiting for, they had heard about him, they knew he was coming. This was a big deal. This idea that maybe Pilate didn't know about anything about Jesus and was just trying to get filled in is just simply not true. He would have known. It was his job to know what was going on in his, his territories, for one. And two, this was a huge event. So he knew what was going on. He knew that the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus because somehow Jesus was infringing on what they already had. But Pilate didn't really want anything to do with this. He says, no, you take and judge him yourself. Any uproar that would have been caused by Jesus in the city would have been subdued by the Jews having Jesus. This was really kind of a win-win for him. He didn't have to deal with it. Jewish people, Jewish leaders, you go ahead and take care of Jesus. That's going to subdue any uproar. And we're going to get through this feast time and I can go back home and not deal with you people. So he says, you take him and judge him. But there was a problem. The Jews couldn't, the Jews could condemn Jesus, even if it was falsely done, and it was, but they couldn't kill him. It says, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They're not talking about Jewish law here. They're talking about Roman law here. They're saying, listen, we're not allowed to put him to death. You have to do it. So the only way to have it done was for the Romans to do it. Like I said earlier, it seems that they had lost their official capacity to carry out executions after their own trials. But it's interesting that it's for this very reason that Scripture could be fulfilled. Prophecy would be fulfilled. Jesus said that he would be lifted up. Remember that I was saying in a manner he was going to die, he's going to be lifted up on a cross. The scripture says that none of his bones would be broken. The scripture says that his side would be pierced. None of these would have been fulfilled had Jesus been stoned. Stoning doesn't require lifting up. Stoning would have likely broken many of the bones in his body, and there would have been no reason for a Roman soldier to pierce his side had it not been done. So all of this that happens, which seems strange, you wonder what's going on, and they're jumping through all these hoops, was actually in order to fulfill Scripture. 
So then Pilate entered his headquarters. In verse 33 through 34, it says, Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? So Pilate, like I said, heads into his headquarters. He's having a private conversation with Jesus. Jesus comes in. The Jews, they can't go in, right? They're, they're trying to stay clean. And uh, so, so Pilate has Jesus come in, and he begins to question him. It was probably strange to him to have the Jews hand over one of their own, so he's probably wondering, what the heck is going on? He had some idea, right? He knew Jesus was coming in, he knew people worshiped him, but he wants to know what's going on. And then in, in Luke, we see that the, the Jews actually told Pilate that Jesus was claiming to be king and trying to cause an insurrection. Luke 23, 1 through 2, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Funny thing is, is they hated that they had to do all that, but they were going to use that as an excuse to get Jesus killed. So because of that, the, the Jews have accused Jesus of being a king, and, and, and not only that, saying he's a king, but he's trying to, to make the Jews not follow Caesar anymore. Um, so Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, but he doesn't answer the question, the direct question. He says, hey, did, did, uh, you, are you asking this of your own accord? Do you believe this about me? Do you... Did, or is it your observations that you've seen that is making you think this? Or is it something others have said about me? In other words, did Pilate really think he was an insurrectionist? Did he have his own evidence and witnesses showing that? Or, or, or is it just the Jews that told him that? So that's why Jesus asked why he asked that question. And then Pilate answered in verse 35 to 36, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate's response actually shows that his line of questioning had nothing to do with his own accord. It had to do with what the Jews said. Basically, by responding sarcastically, this is kind of a sarcastic remark, am I a Jew? It shows that the Jewish angle was the motivation for the questioning. It shows that the Jews had accused him of this. And the irony of the situation is that what the Jews are are accusing Jesus of as a reason to kill him is actually the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a Messiah that was going to come and raise up and oppose Caesar and be a king to them and lead them in battle and set them free. Isn't it weird? That's exactly what they wanted. But that's what they used to accuse Jesus to get the Romans to kill him. But the reality is is that Pilate doesn't really care what the Jews thought. He has a responsibility. He has to make sure that Jesus actually isn't there trying to become a king to overthrow Caesar. That's what his responsibility is as a Roman governor, is to make sure that, that nothing like this happens. So because of this, Jesus responds by reassuring him that he's not a political threat. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. 
He says, listen, my, my kingdom is not some sort of earthly one, and it's not, I'm not some sort of revolutionary, at least not in the political sense. And the proof he offered was this. Listen, if I was a political insurrectionist, if I was some sort of revolutionary, my followers, which you already know there's a lot of, would have fought to set me free. It's not that I wouldn't even be here. I would have never even been delivered over to the Jews to give them an opportunity to bring me here. And you'll remember that Peter even tried to start that fight. But Jesus stopped him because that wasn't the purpose of what Jesus was doing. He wasn't there to be some sort of political revolutionary, political messiah. His purpose was much greater than that. Amen? So then in verse 37, it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus, Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So like I said, Pilate's job was to determine if there was some sort of threat to Roman rule, to Caesar, if there was going to be a revolution. And Jesus tried to explain that his kingdom wasn't like that, but all Pilate heard was the word kingdom. Wait, kingdom? So you are a king. He fixates on that. So you are a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. What a strange phrase for our modern ears. <laughs> Every time I read that, I'm like, what the heck is... Like, it, it, it's obvious that they interpret it that he says, yes, I'm a king. It's obvious that that's what's supposed to be there because it says, you say that I'm a king, but then he says, well, that's the purpose I was born. It's like, is Jesus trying to say, no, that's just what you say. It's not what I'm saying. But then if you look at other translations, for instance, the New American Standard says, Jesus responds, you say correctly that I am a king. The New King James Version says, you say rightly that I am a king. Really, this turn of phrase, it was common back then to say something like this when he says, you say is basically the same for us to say, it is as you say. So when you read this, you can, if you have another translation, you know, it is correctly, it is rightly. But if you have some of the other ones, like the ESV that I'm using here, I think the New International Version and New Living Translation are very similar. They say, you say that I'm a king. Read it this way. It is as you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. So Jesus says, yes, I am a king. It was for this very purpose that I was born, as well as bearing witness to the truth. So he was not a king in the political sense, and as a result, his kingdom, his authority, is much greater than any that would ever be raised here on earth. His kingdom represented truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And the reverse is true as well. All who ignored his voice like the Jews, and even Pilate, were not of the truth. And then in verse 38, Pilate says to him, What is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate responds indignantly, like, ah, What is truth? Brushing off the impact and the magnitude of what Jesus just said brushing off the truth of what Jesus just said and what he was representing. Because as far as Pilate was concerned, truth was relative. Truth was whatever 
Caesar said it was. Truth was whatever Rome said it was. And it's interesting to me that the same attitude is so prevalent today. For so many people, truth is relative. You don't have to spend much time in the media and social media here. Somebody say, live your truth. What's your truth? Everyone can have their own truth, apparently. And it's amazing to me because there's so many logical flaws in that idea. If everyone can have their own truth, then Hitler was justified in what he did to the Jews. That was his truth. That, 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 that's the logical conclusion of thinking like that. So everyone can have their own truth, all the while forgetting that truth, by definition, cannot be relative. There is only one truth. And Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. Amen. There is only one truth. You can't have multiple truths. So then he goes back outside and he tells the Jews that he found no guilt in Jesus. Now this is interesting. He believes what Jesus said, but he still rejects it. He believes that Jesus is telling the truth. There's no guilt in him, but he still rejects him. And if you read in the book of Luke, we even find that, that at this point, he just doesn't want to deal with the situation. He tries to pass him off to Herod. Because he hears Jesus, Jesus was from uh, Bethlehem. Herod was over Bethlehem, so he sends him that way. All Herod does is mocks Jesus and sends him right back to Pilate. So now he has him back and he takes him to the people. In verses 39 through 40, which is where we're going to finish up, it says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to re release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. All we hear from John is Barabbas was a robber, but from the other Gospels we find out that Barabbas actually was an insurrectionist. He actually was a revolutionary trying to overthrow the Roman government. In the process of doing that, he killed somebody, he murdered somebody, and that's why he was going to be put on the cross. That's why he was, he was up to be killed. And uh, uh, so now we have Pilate saying, listen, I don't want to deal with this, maybe. Maybe I won't have to judge Jesus. Maybe I can get out of this by default if I convince them to let Jesus go instead of Barabbas. He didn't believe that Jesus was guilty of any crime, but he lacked the courage and conviction to stand by that. And after his attempt to get, you know, to pass the buck over to Herod didn't work out, he hoped he could get out of passing judgment on Jesus by giving the Jews the opportunity to let him go. He probably figured that because Jesus was so popular among the Jewish people, right? We just had a massive parade, basically, for Jesus to come into the city. They figured, well, he was so popular with the Jews, maybe they would just let him go. Maybe they would pick him over Barabbas. But according to Mark, the Jewish leaders, such was their hatred of Jesus, they began to stir up and convince the rest of the crowd to want Jesus condemned and Barabbas let go. 
Mark 15, 7 says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was this man called Barabbas. That's what I was telling you, that Barabbas was actually an insurrectionist. And uh, so they, they, they demanded this, this criminal be set free. One they knew was a murderer, one who was an insurrectionist. The very same thing that they were accusing Jesus of. They want him to... Does anybody see the, the, the irony in that? They sent him before Pilate saying, this man's an insurrectionist kill him. And they say, no, kill Jesus. Let the actual insurrectionist go. And for Pilate, it's even a worse situation because he doesn't believe Jesus is an insurrectionist, but he's about to be, to be in derelict of his duty to Rome by letting an actual insurrectionist go because he doesn't want to stand up to the Jewish leaders and he doesn't want to stand on his convictions. So he says, who should we release? And they said, not this man, but Barabbas. And we're going to go ahead and end here today. Next week, we're going to continue looking at Pilate's continued fails attempts to try to find some way not to murder Jesus, except for doing the one thing he could do, just stand on his conviction. He, he could have just said no, but afraid of the crowd, he gets sucked in. So we're going to see just a bunch of workarounds instead of standing or responding to the truth that Jesus represented. And we'll look at that next week.